0: Kylian Mbappe has been offered what I have to assume is a record one-year contract for any athlete in history. And later in the episode, we have a very candid interview with the CEO of the Premier League. It's Tuesday, July 25th. I'm senior writer Owen Poindexter, and this is Front Office Sports Today. Kylian Mbappe, who's 24 years old, and perhaps the consensus pick for best soccer player in the world right now, has reportedly been offered a $1.1 billion deal to join Saudi team Al-Halal for a single season. He would receive around two-thirds of that eye-popping sum, with his team, Paris Saint-Germain, taking the remainder. Joining me now to discuss is sports broadcaster Ben Jacobs. Welcome, Ben.
1: Great to be here.
0: Great to have you. So, you've been tracking the story for a little while now. What do we know so far?
1: Well, at the time we're recording, a formal offer of 300 million euros, which is close to 350 million US dollars, has been tabled. Al Hilal are quite prepared to be flexible as well on the Mbappe side. And as a consequence, it could well only be a one year deal. Now, the Saudi club would love Mbappe for longer. So, if they're successful, They'll obviously discuss any possible exit terms. It's very possible, for example, with this kind of outlay, that they'll try for a one-year option. But the feeling is that Kylian Mbappe wants to join Real Madrid either in 2024 or potentially this summer. And as a consequence, anybody wanting Mbappe now may have to respect that. So Al-Hilal are flexible. And as you rightly outlined, they've offered this huge salary to the player as well, worth about $25 a second. So just think what he'd earn, even only in this podcast alone. And now the situation is, and it may change in the next 24 hours, that Kylian Mbappe hasn't yet spoken to the Saudi delegation or anyone connected with Al-Hilal. He's been informed of the offer by PSG and now we need to wait and see whether the player is prepared to engage.
0: So we've seen Cristiano Ronaldo plays for Al Nasser, Karim Benzema uh, for al adihad you, know, you know, some big stars go to Saudi Arabia, but those are stars who are, you know, in the final years of their career. This feels new, both for the, just the dollar amount, but also because Mbappe is in his prime.
1: Yes. And I think that the long-term plan for the Saudi Pro League is obviously to get players in their prime, but this is an anomaly because ultimately there's opportunism there for Saudi Arabia. Everyone's aware that Kylian Mbappe wants to move to Real Madrid and everybody is aware that Real Madrid would prefer to get him on a free transfer because it's more cost effective. Even though if they do sign him in a year's time, they'll have to pay a bigger sign on fee, maybe somewhere In the region of 180 million dollars or 160 million euros. So it still isn't cheap for Real Madrid, but far more so compared to paying a massive fee now. So this isn't necessarily the Saudi Pro League making waves to the point where it's going to rock the industry because this particular transfer is not about that. It's more they realise that Kylian Mbappe might be in limbo because PSG are quite prepared to effectively bench him for the season if he doesn't sign a new deal. And as a result, Saudi Arabia see a one-year opportunity where they might, and it is only might at this stage, be able to do something. Whereas what's perhaps more interesting in terms of the landscape of European football versus other leagues is the signings such as Ruben Neves or Milinkovic-Savic, potentially someone like Alexander Mitrovic, because these are not players that are past their prime. These are mid or late 20s players who have still got three or four more years at the top level that had offers to play Champions League football in many cases. So those are the kind of names that are a reflection of the fact that the Saudi money talks and the league is growing. And the first aim of the Saudi Pro League is to become a top 10 league in the world and then top five, and then maybe down the line between now and 2030, start to challenge the dominance of the Premier League. But in the case of Mbappe, it's much more about opportunism. The plan was not to sign Mbappe. The plan was not to get Mbappe and make a statement. But because of the Mbappe situation with PSG and how acrimonious it's become, there's a window of opportunity. And the Saudi Pro League and Al-Hilal in particular are the first to pounce.
0: Does this offer feel like a new moment to you in the the you know Saudi flooding the the soccer world with just billions of dollars in an attempt yeah to to grow its league into a top ten and then from beyond there is this you know the start of a next
1: chapter. Well, I think everything that the Saudi Pro League are doing is the start of the next chapter. And what makes it unique is there's a collaboration. So the league is working collectively, particularly for clubs that are controlled by the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund, which is known as PIF. Those clubs are ultimately working collectively. And in every transfer, the club is bizarrely one of the last things to be decided because it requires government input. It requires Ministry of Sport input, it requires Saudi Pro League input, and it requires input from the clubs as well in terms of what positions they need to strengthen. And then finally, the player has to decide, for example, whether they want to go to Riyadh or Jeddah or Daman. And if they get an offer in Riyadh and say they want to go to Jeddah, then the deal makers will pivot to an extent. And this is obviously only for the big elite transfers. It's not for every single transfer in the league. But that's what makes it so intriguing that it's a collective effort. And if you put it into Premier League terms, imagine if you had a player like Erling Haaland and it was actually the Premier League in conversation with the British government saying, should we send him to Man City, Manchester United, Chelsea or Liverpool? And that's kind of what's happening. So this is historic and it's unique and it's led by ambition and strategy and money far more so than when the Chinese Super League tried to do something relatively similar. So we now have to wait and see whether or not After this window, the pace of recruitment continues. And as I said before, I wouldn't look at it as Mbappe being the turning point. I think Benzema's the turning point. I think Kante's the turning point. I think Ronaldo was ultimately the catalyst and the turning point. And there'll be more as well because it's a snowball effect. Once one or two come, other players also want to join and play with some of these stars. And slowly but surely, the league will be populated with a higher calibre of footballers. So this is quite clearly the Saudi Pro League making waves. And maybe if we're talking specifically about Mbappe, what we can say is the office is historic. It's a world record fee. And whether it's accepted or not, that makes a statement. It shows you that there is the muscle. It shows you that the Saudi Pro League and its clubs are prepared to pay crazy money in terms of fees and wages. And obviously it sets a marker therefore, because whether they get Mbappe or not, the next big name they come from, will be looking at these figures and almost using that wage as a yardstick to try and get as much as they possibly can. But also selling clubs will be doing the same. The next time there's another star, even if this Mbappe deal doesn't come off, they'll be looking at that Mbappe fee and they'll be ratioing it in order to get the maximum amount for whoever their player is, even if it's not that kind of amount. So it's scary And I suppose from Saudi's point of view, they would say it's exciting because when you have this kind of ambition, strategy, government backing, and financial muscle, uh, the sky is the limit. And this shouldn't be seen as a one-off. This is the first window. This is the formative window. So if you think over the course of the next few seasons and right up until 2030, which is when the Vision 2030, the sports strategy in Saudi Arabia ends, it will obviously be added to and developed. But It's up until 2030 at the moment is the target. If you think of the Saudi Pro League between now and then, you start to realize that this is only step one. And if this is making waves, then should it succeed, the league is only going to grow from strength to strength.
0: Ben Jacobs, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Yeah, absolute pleasure. Up next,
0: I spoke to Premier League CEO Richard Masters. The Premier League is in a fascinating moment right now, where they're as big as they've ever been, but that comes with complications. They have money pouring in from the Middle East, they have the UK government stepping in to regulate their financial dealings, and they have a somewhat difficult relationship with FIFA. The Premier League's chief executive was quite forthcoming about all of that, and that conversation is coming up next. All right. Thrilled to be joined now by Richard Masters, CEO of the Premier League. Welcome, Richard. Thank you for having me, Owen. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So we're uh, on the precipice of a new Premier League season. What's your mindset
2: going into this one? Well, um, we're the competition organizers. So um, what we like to see is a wide open football competition. That's the sort of basis of everything, really. Uh, Competing this jeopardy. So when fans tune in from all around the world, they're not quite sure who's going to win. Um, It's a very interesting season. Um, We're obviously only halfway through the transfer window. Um, Out here in the US, where we have six of our clubs um, playing out the Summer Series um, uh, over the course of this week, we've got three of those clubs who are brand new into Europe. So there's loads of stories uh, that will emerge in the course of the season. But the main thing is, is you've got fizzing, highly competitive action um, with packed stadiums, home and away fans, and it jumps off the screen wherever you are in the world. Yeah, speaking of the summer series, I feel like I've been seeing
0: Premier League teams everywhere I look in the U.S. over the summer, um, mm. and of course, the international rights of uh, for the Premier League are now a higher total uh, dollar total than the domestic rights, and the U.S. is a big part of that. Are we going to be seeing you know
2: more Premier League teams coming over to the states? Well, as, of course, our clubs have been coming over to the states for for a long time uh, to help build their profile uh, in preseason and get some some really valuable pre-season time in. This is the first time the Premier League has come out here, Uh, as I said, with six clubs. Uh, I'm absolutely sure we'll be out here again. Normally, we do our pre-season tournaments in the the odd years when there isn't a World Cup, there isn't a Euro, so we can bring the whole squad with the managers and the fans can get a proper taste of Premier League action. So I'm absolutely sure we'll be back again. Um, We're only two days into our first tour, um, we had 105,000 uh, people turn up at uh, Lincoln Field for, for three matches over the weekend. Felt brilliant, uh, uh, to be honest. But the next opportunity being 25. And, of course, that's when the Club World Cup, the FIFA Club World Cup, is potentially or is going to be coming to the U.S. And, of course, there's, there's the World Cup in 26 itself um, in Mexico and Canada and the U.S. So It, it feels like a, a boom time for soccer in the U.S. And we're really pleased to be a, a big part of it.
0: Yeah, I mean, and I think, you know, the, the Premier League's popularity here here is only growing. Do you think there's any risk of your players getting a little tired of, it feels like they're more in demand. Maybe it's just we're more focused on the same number of games, but it feels like, yeah, they're, they're in demand all over the world. Is there any risk of them uh, getting a little tapped out on all the travel? Do they just, you know, at some point just want to focus
2: on the EPL season? Um, well, there is a risk. I mean, because the calendar's changing. So um, the international match calendar, which is one of the sort of raw materials, if you like, of the industry, which is uh, at its top governed by FIFA, uh, and they govern the uh, international breaks and when the World Cups are held and whether when international tournaments uh, happen. And, of course, in 24-25, in you're also going to see more Champions League matches in the new Swiss system, Swiss system which is coming in. Premier League staying the same, 380 games and it has been since 1994. Um, so we're not growing, but the demands on that top strata of players are growing, um, and I, I think I, I think basically they're maxed out. Um, and we have to we have to protect our players. We have to ensure that the balance between domestic football, international football, or regional football, European football, in the case of our clubs, the balance is maintained. Um, and we're seeing quite a lot of growth. The, the World Cup in 26 is going to be a little bit longer uh, than the previous World Cup. It's going to have an expanded number of teams in it. And, of course, the Club World Cup in 25 is a brand-new concept. Um, and, I, frankly, if two Premier League clubs get into a final and it finishes in the middle of July, I'm not entirely sure how they're going to participate in the beginning of the Premier League season. So you can see how congested it is, and everyone needs to play their role, really, in, in, in being responsible about the calendar, protecting the players and ensuring that the whole thing, uh, the whole thing hangs together properly. And do you feel that your relationship is with
0: FIFA is one where you can work out these scheduling issues? Of course, they wanted to double the frequency of the world cup, which, you know, they, I think the pushback on that has been successful enough to quash that, but they're finding other ways to have more international competition.
2: Um, is there tension there? Yes. Yes. And the answer to the question is: Can we sort it out? Then the answer is no. Um, leagues, domestic leagues, don't really have a seat at the table. Um, you know, it's it's a it's a federal um, system. So FIFA works into the confederations. The confederations work into the national associations. Uh, the FA, in our case, in England, and so we deal through those through those groups. We have our own lobbying groups. So in the Europe, we have the European leagues. We have the World Leagues Forum, which I chair. So I'm on, I'm, on a, I'm on a big forum with the MLS and the South African League and the big European leagues, and we talk about these issues. Um, and we think that domestic football really is the, is, is the, is the centrepiece of world football. People support clubs, ultimately. National team football is fantastic and should have its part of all of this, uh, and, and the World Cup is a brilliant competition. But the balance between all those different things, FIFA's responsibility to ensure that it all remains uh, and we we don't feel like we get a proper a proper seat at the table. The Super League seems to have finally. I mean,
0: think I'm not seeing any more headlines of. There are still two clubs remaining that still want to make this happen. One point that I thought you know was was perhaps a valid one that came up you know during the more serious discussions is that it's very rare that you see the top Premier League teams against the top Bundesliga teams, the top La Liga teams, the top Serie A teams. Should there be more
2: room for, um, for those teams to play each other? Well, the, the European football has you know, the most successful regional competition. And we've got three tiers of European football now, the Champions League, the Europa League, and the Europa Conference League, which West Ham United uh, won in Prague. I was lucky enough to be there. And it was an unbelievable, brilliant night for the, for the whole club and all the players involved. So th- there is more than enough, more than enough European football, uh, in my view, um, the question is, is you know, where does it all go from here? Because every midweek, every weekend is scheduled between August and May. Then you've got, then you've got the, the players have to have a break. You know, as part of our contractual arrangement. the Players they have to have a three-week holiday, um, uh, and we are we are uh, committed to delivering that, uh, as you'd expect. So. Um, I don't think there's any need for more European football. I, I think it's I think it's it's incredibly strong as it is. Heading back over to the US, the USL here
0: is considering adopting a promotion and relegation system. Do, do you think that would be a welcome
2: change here? Well, I think it will. It will obviously. I mean, it, we, we have a pyramid system in England, so it, it's like it, we're completely used to it. we been brought up with promotion and relegation, and that that brings um, some wonderful. Um, Elements in terms of jeopardy and increased interest at the bottom half of every league. So, and hope and aspiration is really the sort of is the bedrock of fandom. Once you've chosen a team, you want you want that team to do better. Um, even if you're in the fifth tier of English football, could one day could you could you get to the Premier League? Um, is a question that everyone can ask. Uh, and if you do well enough, you can. Um, we've got our 51st club in the Premier League this season in Luton Town. Um, so I think promotion and relegation brings that jeopardy and brings that interest, but it also brings financial jeopardy so you have to make sure that the finances of of the leagues that are uh, giving and receiving uh, work together um, and it's been a challenge in english football it continues to be a challenge um so um, obviously, we are big believers in the pyramid system. And
0: speaking of those global changes that we're seeing, one of them is Middle East money flooding the the system, and you know across the globe. I mean, we just saw reports that Kylian Mbappe was offered a, a billion dollars. Well, I mean, a third of that will go to would go to PSG uh, or one point one billion, actually. Um, and of course, a lot of that money is going into the Premier League itself through through Newcastle, through Man City. Are your financial bylaws, are they equipped for this
2: giant influx of money? Um, Well, something is changing, obviously. uh, The Saudi Pro League have announced that they want to be a top 10 league um, over a period of time. They're clearly investing ahead of revenue, is one way of putting it. Um, The Premier League is a a, a $6 billion economy, um, £6 billion economy. And all of that money, that where revenue is generated is reinvested back into the competition itself in terms of running it and players and managers. Um, so at some point, at some point, all leagues have to generate revenue in order to be sustainable over the long term. We've taken 30 years to get to the position we're in at the moment, which I think is a really fantastic football competition that people can buy into and support, watch all over the world and feel part of. Um, so it's a long journey for, 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 for anyone, um, uh, including the Saudi Pro League, but of course they're entitled to buy players as much as any any football club is. Um, so the, the question is really, I think, about sort of multi club ownership as well. So you have um, Premier League teams that um, that the ownership structures also have teams in other leagues, and when those uh, when there's transactions between those companies or those football clubs that they are fairly drawn up, and we have probably the strongest associated party transaction rules we brought in 18 months ago to deal with this very fact. So, you know, changes in the football system create regulatory challenges to ensure there's a level playing field. Um, and it's incumbent on the Premier League, it's incumbent on UEFA and FIFA to sort of rise to those challenges and maintain that level playing field. Um, and, you know, for, again, there's a new challenge out there. We must, we must rise to it. And in the UK,
0: you have an independent regulator coming in um, to to oversee the whole football system. Are you going to be able to, to work in a friendly,
2: um, you know, coordinated way with this regulator? I hope so. Um, I, I, my, you know, my, my job has many parts to it and uh, I obviously very much enjoy coming out to the U.S. See packed stadiums in the sunshine watching Premier League teams. But I do spend a lot of time also um, talking about these sort of financial bylaws. I think you called them about how football regulates itself Um, And as you say, in England, there is going to be an independent regulator of our industry, which is quite unique um, and very different. And obviously, we want to make sure that regulator um, doesn't harm the industry that's been so successful, that it helps it. Because really, the regulator's job is to ensure that the football clubs themselves are sustainable. So we think there's enough money flowing through the system to ensure they're sustainable, provided that there are... Really strong financial rules in place. So, like everyone else, we're looking at our financial rules. You for a change in their financial rules from um, from the current FFP rules to the score cost ratio. We are likely to follow suit with a similar sort of model. So, again, it's it's one of the it's one of these challenges um, that we will face up to. All right, Richard Masters, thank you so much for joining us on the show.
0: Thank you, Owen. Thanks for having me. That is it for today. We have a stellar lineup of interviews coming this week. Subscribe. You won't want to miss them. Tell your friends to tune in. Thanks for listening. We will see you tomorrow.